0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we'll be talking with a somewhat surprising and newly emerging figure in the culture wars. And the reason I say surprising is because uh, when he first emerged, it, it kind of caught everyone by surprise. And of course, I'm talking about Dr. Jordan Peterson of the University of Toronto because we've seen political correctness pushing people back and we've seen organization after organization and professor after professor and professional after professional to sort of knuckle under. Uh, just They get tired of fighting. They decide that they're not going to actually push back against the ever-increasing and ever-expanding demands placed on them so it was somewhat surprising when on september twenty seven 2016 uh, Jordan Peterson released the first of three videos on political correctness in opposition to the Canadian government's bill c16 and that bill proposed to outlaw make illegal harassment and discrimination based on gender identity and gender expression under Canada's Canadian Human Rights Act as well as the criminal code now Peterson did not object uh... to concerns that lgbtq people are discriminated against he objected to the implications for freedom of speech for example the dozens of new so-called transgender pronouns which many people are not even aware of i i would challenge you to find anybody who actually is aware of all of the over forty i believe it is now uh... transgender pronouns but under this new law you could be prosecuted for not using a term you weren't even aware existed now, Jordan Peterson's video sparked a, a massive outcry by social justice warriors, and it sparked protests at the University of Toronto. It sparked letters from the university telling uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson to cease and desist in his crusade against political correctness, and in his articulation of his point of view. And as, the result, uh, as a result of this, the media has been covering it. There has been a debate uh, that was televised on Canadian TV between Jordan Peterson and a number of others. And get this, this is actually true. Uh, the debate moderator actually said that for anybody who was so disturbed uh, by Dr. Jordan Peterson's words at the debate, at the debate, mind you, uh, that there were counselors waiting to talk to them afterwards. This is now the kinds of university campuses uh, that Canada hosts. Universities fill the safe spaces. Uh, and students who cannot even attend a debate without being triggered by somebody declining to use words that never even existed as short as five years ago. So I, I contacted Dr. Jordan Peterson last week and asked if he'd come on the bridgehead to do an interview, and he's currently in California, but he was kind enough to agree to come on for a half an hour, and he actually stayed on uh, a few minutes after that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the ever-insightful Dr. Jordan Peterson. So, uh, first of all, give us a bit of a rundown on on what has been happening uh, at the University of Toronto. I've been seeing your name all over the news. I've been seeing interviews with you everywhere, and it seems to be about uh, these transgender pronouns. Kind of fill us in on what's going on.
1: Well, that was sort of the proximal cause. Um, I, I made some videos two months ago complaining about criticizing, let's say, criticizing some recent federal legislation, proposed federal legislation in Canada called Bill C-16, and also uh, decrying the move on the part of the Human Resources and Equity Department at the university to make what I would regard as political re-education mandatory for their staff, not all the staff at the university, but for the human resources personnel, and, and this sort of thing is happening everywhere, by the way. I just received an email from a guy at a large engineering firm, who's, and the entire firm there is now undergoing mandatory unconscious racism and bias training, which is an abhorrent uh, demand. First of all, there's no evidence that it, that it works, and second, you're not supposed to be politically educating your your employees. Right. It's, it's, it's reeks of totalitarianism. Anyways, I made these two videos three of them actually because one of them was a tactical video about how to fight the burgeoning forces of political correctness and I posted them on YouTube and I have a YouTube at that time um, my YouTube channel consisted pretty much only of my uploaded lectures from the universities and some public talks that I've done and uh, I was trying to straighten out my thoughts about all of this and also to warn people about these underhanded political moves, and anyways, it produced an absolute firestorm of of response. There were two demonstrations at the University of Toronto, one um, decrying my position, the other a free speech debate, and then there was an assault at the free speech debate by professional protesters on a young female journalist that was covering the event, and so that went viral, and then since then, there's been, we've been trying to keep track, there's been about 180 formal print articles about this topic, and millions of people have watched the additional videos that I've produced on YouTube about political correctness, and and it's been a big story in Canada, maybe the biggest story in Canada, maybe, for the last two and a half months. It's completely insane.
0: It's, it's very interesting as well. I just want to touch on something that you just mentioned, because I went to Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and I did an arts degree. And uh, I'm quite familiar with a lot of the sort of uh, ludicrous uh, claims of oppression going on. Uh, myself and one of yep. my friends often used to discuss, look, we're here with $1,000 laptops. We come from middle-class homes. Oh, yeah. By virtue yeah, of the yeah. fact that we're in this university, uh, we're not oppressed. So, uh,
1: Yeah, well, people like, well, here's the situation there from a psychological perspective. Imagine you're privileged. Right you know, and and like the students that you're describing, then imagine that you can go that one better. You can be privileged and claim for yourself all the privileges of being oppressed. And you can put yourself in a position where you're a spokesperson for all the oppressed. So, you know, you've got got three things going for you there, none of which require any effort. You're morally superior on three fronts. And that's overwhelmingly attractive to people. And then if you add to that the power of denunciation and and revenge that goes along with wielding the morally righteous stick then you've got something that's um, almost what would you call it irresistibly attractive to a certain kind of person who's driven by resentment and narcissism and these people can become very dangerous at the drop of a hat I've I mean, today at Ryerson University, the director of social work resigned because of accusations that he was racist because he left a job talk meeting that happened to feature a black applicant. And I mean, people leave job talks all the time for one reason or another. It's, I mean, I don't know exactly why he walked out. He didn't walk out. He just left. It's like, but, you know... These student group, the Black Liberation Collective, which is a pathological group in my estimation, the two people who, who started it are unsavory characters to say the least. They immediately mobbed him and, you know, he stepped down. Now, he helped create them because he was the director of social work, and social work is so politically correct that it's, it's almost beyond comprehension. But it's just an indication of how far this has gone.
0: Well, maybe you can explain this to our listeners, because, of course, a lot of us have been, have been watching the, dis- the, the description of these privileged structures unfold over the last five years. It's a lot worse now than it was when I graduated from university only five years ago.
1: Oh, yeah, it's really, it's really taken on a whole new, thing, whole new life over the last five years.
0: But we're watching the media. I've been looking around for some interesting descriptions of why, for example, Donald Trump won the election. But what I'm seeing in the, in the media is that uh, X amount of people are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, which, as I understand it, is a very recently invented term. So what is this oppression and this privilege structure? Explain it to our listeners.
1: Well, the, the, the basic claim, you, you can imagine that the basic claim has two historical foundations of historical slash philosophical foundations one is straight marxism, and the the idea behind Marxism is that at least one of the ideas is that any power structure that's any that's hierarchical so that distinguishes between say the successful and the unsuccessful is corrupt and should be it's corrupt, and the evidence of its corruption is that that inequality exists and should be. Restructured and overthrown, and many, many university departments. And I would say women's studies is the, the top offender, but social work is, is very close, and sociology is very close, and education—that which is really horrifying—is is very close in in terms of their of their possession by this sort of ideology. the The idea is to produce political activists who will roughly overthrow the system, and then you combine that with postmodernism. Um, which is, whose king philosopher is Jacques Derrida, who's absolutely pathological and resentful thinker, and as well as being incoherent, in my estimation, um, it, their claims are that well that there's no such thing really as objective reality, and that all disputes between people are just power struggles. And so the combination of Marxism and postmodernism, which emerged, I would say, in the 1970s after straight Marxism was discredited because of the catastrophic failures of the Soviet Union and China. The Marxists, this particularly happened in France and then spread around the world, but the Marxists married the postmodernists and produced this unholy child as their offspring, and that line of argumentation has is dominated the universities, and now the universities have been producing political activists by the hundreds of thousands, and now we're seeing the consequence of that.
0: Well, now explain how so, transgender pronouns play into this whole scenario that you're describing. Well,
1: in some sense, in some sense, they're a sideshow. You know, in that there aren't that many. It isn't even transgendered people because most transgendered people, like the classical sort of transgendered person, is someone who is uncomfortable with their their sexual identity from a very young age and would like to transform into the other sex. Right. And so they, so that would be a he who would like to become a she, or a she that would like to become a he. Those people actually don't have any problems being addressed by normative pronouns. But there's a tiny, tiny minority of people um, th- th- whose numbers we we can only estimate. But they'd be a fraction of a fraction of a percent who claim that they have an identity that doesn't fit into the standard binary nomenclature. So they're no, they're neither male nor female or they're both, or there's something in between, or there's something completely different. Um, There's been a set of pronouns invented, I would say, by radical PC authoritarian types for ideological reasons that purport to identify these people, and now the requirement to use those pronouns has been written into Canadian law of all the unbelievable things. Along with the insistence, and this is what I was criticizing in my video there's an insistence built into the law which and the policy is being developed by the ontario human rights commission which is an unbelievably dangerous organization that human identity is nothing but subjective feeling right and that there's no there's no underlying biological basis there's no underlying objective basis to identity claims and so anyone can claim to have any identity roughly speaking and uh... The legislation has been set up so that it's mandatory upon the participant in, in, in say that dialogue to use whatever descriptors the demander demands under pay, under pain of punishment by law and serious punishment too.
0: Now this is they, they changed
1: the criminal code and, and made this into a hate speech act.
0: There's obviously been it's a not need. good. There's obviously been a need for a voice like yours because you mentioned 180. Uh, news articles. It seems like the situation was kind of building, and then uh, you showed up yep. and, and obviously tapped into what a lot of people were thinking and a lot of people were feeling. So, what? Made, yeah. Well, what I think what happened was up?
1: that. Well, what made me speak up is like I'm. I've been a student of the development of totalitarian political systems for a very long time. I'm very interested in the psychology of totalitarianism, and I've studied that for about three decades. I wrote a book about it back in 1999 called Maps of Meaning, and. In that book, I outlined the psychological processes that needed to occur for, for individuals to turn into totalitarians and for their states to follow, and also what could be done to forestall that. Right. And part of that is character development. And and one part of that character development is the willingness and commitment to to use words that are genuinely reflective of your own experience. So we could call that the requirement to speak truth. And now I see legislation coming up in Canada that demands that I use a set of words that have been invented by radical PC authoritarians who are hell-bent on flipping Western civilization upside down. And I'm not doing that. So I think the reason that what I did caused such a firestorm was partly because it was timely, especially what was also going on in the U.S. with the election, but also because there was some, I, I made the general case, you know, I'm, I'm not a proponent of political correctness, but I took the general case and made it specific. I said, I don't care. I'm not doing what this legislation requires me to do, period. And so it was the insistence that there was some actual thing that I would not do, I think, that propelled the dialogue that I initiated let's say, out of the ordinary category of political complaint.
0: So why have you been the first one to say this? Like academics are, uh, there's a lot of people, I assume, who study the same things that you've studied, and yet you're the first one Yeah, they don't study
1: them the same way.
0: <laughs> Explain. Uh, well, see,
1: I've been, so let's say that part of my study has been political psychology. Well, I've tried to make, I've tried to understand politics at the level of the individual, so when I was analyzing states like the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, and those are the two states that I've concentrated most on in my psychological analysis... I was interested specifically in what has to happen to a person at the level of the person in order to participate in the horrendous lies that these totalitarian states, the horrendous, murderous, genocidal lies that these totalitarian states produced. And I was guided in that analysis by the writings of people like George Orwell and uh, Vaclav Havel and Viktor Frankl and... Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who all insisted that a huge part of the process by which states became pathologized and, and, and murderous was the willingness of their citizens to falsify their own experience in service of ideology and fear. And so that was basically to lie in the service of ideology and fear. And so I've concentrated on teaching my students, for example, that the proper way for them to build themselves into citizens of stalwart character, let's say, to use an anachronistic terminology, is to monitor the words that they are using very carefully and to continually refuse to falsify their experience in the service of societal or ideological demands. And uh, that's, that's a unique stance, in some sense, in the, in the academic sphere, because most academics take a more sociological perspective, let's say, or economic or political, Right. you know, looking at how individuals are compelled in their behavior by broad social forces, and for me it was more, well, let's call it a spiritual battle, what happened in the Soviet Union and, and communist China and in Nazi Germany, that was a spiritual battle as much as a political or economic battle. And it has to be fought at the level of individual character, and that makes my approach unique. I would say, you know, apart from those writers that I just mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. You've drawn a lot. It's of an parallels. unfashionable approach. You've drawn a lot of parallels to the to the Soviet Union, and you've talked about class warfare and class guilt, and yeah. used the example of the kulaks. Wouldn't some people yep. find like the the whole uh, you know, sort of a, a dramatic comparison to political correctness?
1: Well, it is a dramatic comparison, but the, the 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 uniting factor is class guilt, and that gets out of hand really fast. So, and then the whole idea the whole idea of class guilt is abhorrent to me because it flips the 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 precepts of Western jurisprudence on its on its head, and this. the the invasion of these ideas into our legal system has gone far farther than people realize. So, for example, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the U.S., the EEOC, which has a tremendous amount of power, has already decided that uh, preferred pronoun use, let's call it compelled pronoun use, is mandatory in American businesses. It just hasn't hit public awareness yet. And It's law in New York City that you have to call people by the compelled pronouns or you can be subject to a $250,000 fine. And in Canada, the social justice tribunals, because that's actually what they call them, there's eight quasi-judicial bodies that have been formed in Ontario, and that's Canada's biggest state, biggest province. And those people have taken to themselves the power to throw out the jurisprudential and adversarial traditions of the british common law system it says that right in their policies under powers of the tribunals and that includes the human rights tribunal which is a kangaroo court they they have a, a policy document that says that in order to expeditiously um pursue their human rights inquisition they're allowed to do anything that the tribunal sees fit that's 1.7 w under powers of the tribunal and you see these the people the postmodern marxists believe that western civilization is a corrupt tyrannical patriarchy and that it should be restructured at every level of analysis from the bottom up and they're training people in that ideology and to be political activists, and in my estimation, it's back of the envelope calculations, but my estimation is that these radical university departments have produced between 300,000 and 3 million committed revolutionary political activists over the last 30 years, and now, we're, and now they're in every organization, they're in especially human resources, which is the, they're the fifth column for, for, for businesses, for private businesses and organizations.
0: So what's the most dangerous department in the universities right now, then?
1: Well, it depends on the, on the university, but I would say the number one da- most dangerous department is women's studies, and then right after that is social work. And faculties of education, they're the top three, and the faculties of education are particularly horrifying, in my estimation, because they're targeting children. In Canada, they teach them social constructionist biology, with an animated character called the gender unicorn, which is this cute little figure that insists to children that there's no relationship between biological sex and gender identity, which is a patently false claim. Wow. Wow, yeah, and and this is for kids in grade 7. And this is not accidental. I know it sounds like a bloody paranoid conspiracy theory, you know, but all you have to do is go online, read a dozen women's studies websites... And and go look up the gender unicorn, that's a wonderful thing to find. And, you know, I debated a guy from the University of Toronto on a, on a Canadian public TV show about a month ago. His name was Nicholas Matt. He teaches in the Women's and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. And he came right out and said that there was no biological differences between men and women and that that was the scientific consensus for the last four decades.
0: Scientific consensus.
1: Yes, yes, and he's a historian of medicine, that's, and, yes, and, and, and the response from the university to that claim was nothing. I've got two warning letters from the university because of my refusal to use these pronouns, despite that the, the fact that the university's own policies insist that freedom of expression is the highest virtue at the university, and this Matt character could come out on, essentially on national TV and say, oh, there's no difference between, no biological difference between men and women, and it's like a radio silence from the university.
0: So explain these transgender pronouns. If I ran into somebody and I used the wrong pronoun, I I wouldn't even, I I understand there's over 40 of them. I don't even know what they are. You know, I know that...
1: Well, neither does anyone else. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Like, you, you see, you're confusing. You, you're still stuck in the old paradigm. The old paradigm demanded coherence and consistency in, in reasoning and in legislation. This replaces it by rule of subjective whim. I mean, some of the people who are demanding these sorts of things, they wear bracelets one day when they want to be referred to with their male pronouns and another bracelet another day when they want to be referred to by their female pronouns. And, you know, you might think, well, that can't be true, and and nothing will happen if you make a mistake. It's like, don't kid yourself. When I pushed the social justice warriors, PC authoritarians is a better word, one on the television debate and then second in the debate at at the University of Toronto, um, on the TV debate, I was accused of violence and um, hate propaganda, and I was accused again of hate propaganda at the University of Toronto debate. So, and that puts me in, in the same conceptual category as, uh, you know, who, as, as the Ku Klux Klan or people who are radically uh, fomenting racial hatred, let's say.
0: But we had, speaking it, it, of racial hatred and dividing people into groups, because I, I follow politics pretty closely, and I remember watching the one presidential debate where uh, white privilege came up, and Hillary Clinton sort of affirmed her belief in white privilege. And, and again, this. this yeah, I see came, she didn't step
1: down from running for the president because of that, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and she ran pretty lustily against Obama in 2008 but this this term wasn't around at least not in common language only five years ago when I was in university so what's the whole white privilege yep. thing all about
1: well that's another example of class based guilt you know if you're white then you're guilty and it's, it's a way of it, it's a standard social uh, standard Marxist uh, trope I would say I mean is to is to insist that the the most salient element of a person is their identity. You know, in classic Marxism, that would have been their class identity, right? So, working class versus uh, proletariat versus bourgeoisie. And of course, the call was to wipe out the bourgeoisie, which, of course, happened along with wiping out a huge chunk of the proletariat. But the idea was that if you were a member of a uh, uh, an oppressor class. Then you, as an individual, shared all the guilt of that class and could be punished for that, regardless of your individual guilt or innocence, which is the fundamental presupposition of Western jurisprudence and of western civilization there's no individuals for the p c authoritarians there 's only groups, and so if you if you if you 're caucasian let's say if you 're white, which is a pretty loose category by the way um, then you you you're responsible for every sin that, that the white race has committed since the beginning of time.
0: Yeah, and, and then
1: don't be thinking these people don't mean what they say.
0: Well, you've been threatened already, have you not? With with all sorts of uh, employee employment ramifications.
1: Well, the university sent me two warning letters, and that's what you do for, that's how you build a paper trail to discipline recalcitrant employees. And the thing, one of the things about the legislation that's also, there's so many insanely pernicious things about this legislation that it's almost impossible to know where to start attacking it. But apart from the fact that you're compelled to use a certain kind of ideological language and that it's hate speech if you don't, and that you can be tried by a, kangaroo court that has broad extra, extra legal powers and is willing to dispense with the entire western legal tradition while pursuing you is the fact that if you're an employer in Ontario <clears throat> you're responsible for the speech act of your employees as if you yourself said them regardless of whether or not there was a complaint and independent of the intent of the speaker. Well, so let's say I say to face, I'm an employee of yours. I say something in the hallway to another employee. A third employee hears it, takes offense. Then you, as my employer, can be taken to the human rights tribunal um, because of the impact of that utterance on the third party. Now, and you- there's lots of places where they're setting up anonymous reporting. Structures. So this is happening in New York State, for example, where they just hired fifty policemen to act as um, part of the bias investigation unit. And so there are anonymous systems set up where you can denounce someone for their unconscious bias or perceptions, and you'll be investigated by the anti-bias <coughs> patrol. And that, that's happening on university campuses like, like you wouldn't believe. So, I mean, the University of Toronto is going to implement that policy on December 15th.
0: You warned in one interview that churches should be very concerned about this legislation and the implications of it. What did you mean by that?
1: Oh, well, anybody who, who, anybody who's part of an organization that would stand up, say, for the traditional family or traditional sexual values, will will be prosecuted forthwith for being prejudicial
0: and how soon do you see this coming on the horizon
1: it's already happening it it is this isn't something that's coming this is already happening so what do people it's far far farther along than people think
0: what do people who are concerned about this kind of thing do about it (sighs)
1: stop stop being pushed so, for example, today I had an email from an engineer who reported to me that his large engineering firm was going to be, that it was mandated for them to take these anti-racism and anti-bias training programs. He's thinking about refusing. And then I got another letter from a, a guy who was a tradesman who, who had gone to Centennial College in Toronto because I had recommended on the Joe Rogan show yesterday that parents consider not sending their Student, their kids to university anymore, but maybe to trade school. Right, exactly. And he told me that at Centennial College uh, in Toronto, now you have to take a social justice course before you graduate. It's mandatory. It's a 300-page textbook that that's full of neo-Marxist and postmodern nonsense about the oppressive nature of capitalism and the pathology of Western civilization. And you know, un- unless you take that course and pass it and spit out the required answers then you don't get your tradesman's certificate and people have to stop agreeing to do this right they have to say no I'm not doing that and they have to mean it and it's like it's a tricky thing because when you say no no has a meaning no means I'm not doing this no matter what you do to me period and I'll fight you right to the end and so you can't say no casually but the the alternative is to get backed into a terrible corner inch by inch well done and then you lose your voice yeah Which yeah and if you lose your voice all you see the thing about life is that life is very hard and, and it's 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 full of of your people are vulnerable and life is full of suffering and the one thing you have to buttress yourself against that is your integrity and your voice And if you sacrifice that for short-term security, which is what we're continually being asked to do right now, then you're going to find yourself with all the suffering of life and absolutely no defenses. And I would not recommend that.
0: The homogenization of an entire culture, just like we saw in the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, it's more like the liquefaction of an entire culture. I mean, the estimates are... You know, and they vary, but that between 30 and 60 million people were killed by internal repression in the Soviet Union between 1919 and 1959. And, you know, it was perhaps up to 100 million in China during the same period. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. And, I mean, no matter how brutal you you, you could imagine the most brutal, brutal possible circumstances under which a state could operate, I can tell you that unless you're quite tutored in brutality, your imagination of the horrors bears very little relationship to the depths of the actual horrors that characterize those states. And all done in the name of compassion and the common good.
0: And apologized for by Western intellectuals for decades.
1: Oh, God, that's for sure. Especially the French postmodernists. A detestable bunch, treasonous bunch. And, and they do- their thinking dominates the modern university. All. all Radical critics of Western civilization, which they treat as, as nothing but tyranny, uh, the misfortune of actually living somewhere that's run by tyrants. I mean, obviously, Western civilization is by no means perfect, but there's a reason that everybody wants to emigrate to the Western countries, and it's because we're the best of a bad lot, let's put it that way, right. and by a large margin.
0: Well, Doctor Peters. So we're in
1: danger. We're we're very much in danger of destabilizing our culture. And and we have very, very many people working as hard as they possibly can to make sure that happens as fast as possible. And some of these people, and, and a non trivial minority, because I understand them psychologically, would be perfectly happy if everyone was sitting around equal in the rubble.
0: Right. The equal sharing of misery. You bet. Well, we hope to have you have you on again soon. I know you only had a half an hour, and we really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Yeah, and I would
1: say to your to your listeners is like look, here's a way of knowing when you have something to say. You're starting to feel resentful. And so then when you're resentful, you have to ask yourself two questions. One is, well, am I just not fulfilling my responsibilities and whining because people are asking me to do a little bit extra. So maybe I'm immature and that's why I'm resentful. And maybe you talk to your family and your friends to find out if that's the case. But then maybe you're not resentful and maybe what's happening instead is someone is starting to tyrannize you. And that means you have something to say. And then you have an There's an ethical demand that's placed on you by your own spirit. I would say at that point to stand up and say something because otherwise you'll turn into a slave and unless you want to be a slave then if you're being oppressed you stand up and push back
0: stand up and push back it's advice that we need to hear
1: and you do that with truth and care
0: well you've given us a good example of that Dr. Peterson and and again I I hope we can have you on again soon
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity.